Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Tee of the People. In this episode, we have the news, like always, with me, Brittany Clinton-Sam, and then we're joined by the reporter, Liz Brunig. In 2006, a cheerleader uh, at a high school in North Texas reported her rape. Uh, No one was ever prosecuted for her rape. In fact, the town turned on her. And so the question that my article tries to answer is why. Now, the word for this week is celebrate the wins. You know, so often we're in this work where it's hard. We fight more than we win. We press, we go on, and we just forget to celebrate. That what happened with the midterms, we got a lot of good things out of that. The governorships, the state legislatures. We didn't win all the races we wanted, but we got some good stuff. And even think about in our personal lives is that we spend so much time, especially activists, like fighting and pushing, that we forget to celebrate the wins. Well, in this episode, you'll hear us celebrate some things with some people on the pod. Uh, and remember to celebrate the wins in the lives of the people around you too let's go hey y'all it's the news this is Brittany packnett at miss Pacchetti on all social media and this is sam sanyangwe at sam sway on twitter and this is clint smith at clint smith the third and this is deray at deray i i i see i got you clint i almost didn't do it but i got you <laughs> anyway this is deray at d-r-e-y on twitter <laughs> Um, Y'all, it's Brittany's birthday. Oh, snap. As of this recording, Brittany is out here doing it. Out here, 34 whole years old. I thought she was 24, but, Uh you know, that's that skin. That's that well-moisturized skin. I appreciate that, because DeRay said I was 40, so I appreciate that, Clint. (laughs) If it's your birthday, make some noise. If it's your birthday, make some noise. Ew, ew. Oh, Um. (laughs) What did you learn this year that... That you're gonna take. What did I learn this year? That you're gonna take with well, you. You know, 33 was my Jesus year, and I I really learned about the power. Can of you explain faith what the Jesus year means for the secular folks? Yes, very very fair question. Um, so as a person of faith, Jesus died and was resurrected in his 33rd year, um, and so um, it is a year of great significance for me as a per- person of faith. And I I really tried to um, I tried to be really intentional about getting clear on my purpose this year, which I feel like I did and having faith enough that I could like both get clear on that. And I could, could be adventurous and imaginative about how to live that out. Um, and so, yeah, it was a pretty amazing year and some things that I never even dreamed could happen happened. And so, um, I'm really grateful for 33. I'm grateful to see 34, um, shout out to, you know, all my fellow scorpions, anybody else celebrating a birthday this week. It's our time. Let's walk into it. <laughs> Let's go and be the powerful people we were designed to be. Clint, don't you have uh, news to share too? I do. Uh, yeah. So I just uh, I just signed a book deal. I'll have a book coming out Woo-hoo! with Little Woo-hoo! Brown, uh, and hey. so super excited. It's it's a been project that's brewing in me for for a long time, and I've been been working on it for the 
past uh, several months and excited to keep working on it. So what's the book about? It's a sort of intergenerational story of Black America through place. And so it's using different places uh, throughout the United States uh, as an entry point with which to think about certain periods of time. And so how do, for example, in Monticello, how does Monticello exist as a place that is meant to uh, lift up and celebrate the legacy of Thomas Jefferson while also grappling with and reckoning with what it means for him to have been someone who enslaved his own children and enslaved 600, 600 people. And how do, you, how do you carry both of those things at once? And how do these places talk about their relationship to that history? And so it's kind of going from place to place in an effort to understand how these places and the people associated with them talk about what this history means and how we can understand these places as a means of better understanding our sort of collective history as a country. That's dope, Clint. Wow. So you were going to all of these different places, spending a lot of time there, talking to people. Yeah, yeah. Go to, I've, been, uh, I've been going to a bunch of different places, talking to a bunch of different people, continuing to meet so many people who, um, who've been doing this for decades. And, and I think it's important that, that their stories and, and their ideas and, and the work that they've been doing is lifted up. And so I hope to play a small role in that. Dope. Well, I think that's awesome. And I'm very, very excited about it. Can't wait to read it. And Brittany, do you have an announcement? Yes, I decided in my 33rd year that my purpose was to be exactly like Clint Smith. And so I am also <laughs> I am also working on a book with One World. Hey. It's lit out here. And so my book is currently titled We Are Like Those Who Dream, which is a passage from Psalms because what I decided mm. that I wanted to put together for the world was a Bible of the wisdom of black women. So it is a book for everyone, but I just believe at any given moment in time in your life and certainly in um, the political context of the world, the wisdom of black women has been sustaining, has been informative, has been inspiring generations. And so I want to make sure that it continues to do that moving forward. So I'm really, really excited to, to give this gift to people on my birthday. Hey, and so dropping a book announcement on your birthday and you have a book coming out in honor of your birthday. Totally. Like, yeah, M Michelle Obama gave me her book for my birthday week, pretty much. Obviously, she was thinking of me. That was a good segue, Clint. That was really good. Pew, pew. For a second there, I was like, what is he saying? I was like, what? Clearly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Michelle Obama, the photos of her on the interviews and with the Oprah interview in Elle Magazine, beautiful. I can't wait to see the tour. She's selling out stadiums, which is wild. So it should be amazing. I mean, just amazing. Incredible. She's a rock star. Truly incredible. As she deserves to be. The other thing that is in the news that we can't not talk about is the fires. The The videos of the fires have been horrific. I just had no clue, you know, because living on the East Coast, that's not something you deal with regularly. And I was in San Francisco this weekend and seeing the smoke and smog even down there was just like, it just reminded me of the severity and intensity of the fires and all the people who lost their homes. So many people have to rebuild. So, uh, you know, I hope that there's a plan to to help them out. But it is, uh, it was wild to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's a particular reminder about climate change and the impact that climate change can have in our lives today as we think about, you know, long term and I think, you know, thinking about the hurricanes in Florida, thinking about the fires in California, you know, it's a, a reality that, like, we're living with the impacts of climate change right now. And, like, this isn't something we have to speculate about, but something that, like, is very much impacting uh, a lot of people, like, today. Um, so I'm hopeful that the conversations will start to shift and people will start to come on board with an actual 
you know, plan to address climate change rather than denying its existence. Yeah, I think that, Sam, the point that you're making is so right. Often we look at natural disasters as exactly that, natural disasters that are inexplicable and and not preventable. Um, But there are so many ways in which, at the very least, the scale to which we are experiencing these things and the frequency to which we are experiencing things is indeed preventable, if not the acts themselves. And so I couldn't agree with you more, Sam. And And I'm hopeful that, you know, in addition to thoughts and prayers that we actually get some change uh, enacted in this country so that we can see these things decline. Don't go anywhere. More Pate of the People is coming. Pate of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. My news is about Jeff Sessions, who just before leaving the Justice Department as Attorney General, he issued a memo that makes it significantly harder for the Department of Justice uh, to hold police departments accountable for unconstitutional behavior and police violence. Uh, So his memo imposes three stringent requirements on consent decrees. So these are the agreements uh, that we saw in places like Baltimore and Chicago and Ferguson uh, that require police departments to implement particular reforms uh, in order to increase accountability and reduce police violence. And so this memo uh, requires a couple of things. First, it requires top political appointees to sign off on the agreement rather than career lawyers. So again, it's, it makes it more political, uh, less likely, particularly under Republican administrations, that these agreements will be signed off on because of that. 
Uh, it also requires uh, department lawyers to lay out evidence of a, additional violations beyond unconstitutional behavior by the police. So unconstitutional policing itself is no longer uh, enough to trigger a consent decree under this new memo. Uh, and then finally, uh, that it requires that each of these agreements has a sunset date, uh, meaning that you know in the past it was that the agreement would stay in effect until the police department had demonstrated that it had made all of the changes required of it. Uh, now there's actually just going to be an end date. So whether or not the police department actually makes the changes that they agreed to make, the agreement will just end. And it will terminate at a particular date. So you know this is part of a broader strategy. We talked about you know, Jeff Sessions and some of the actions he's made in the past, uh, ordering, for example, a review of existing consent decrees. Well, this impacts future consent decrees. Uh, and it's a reminder of the power that the federal government has uh, to address issues like police violence uh, and how it is making conscious choices to allow those forms of violence uh, to continue uh, without any type of intervention or making those interventions uh, less likely to actually happen. Uh, and we know that these interventions work. So for example, uh, Vice News did an analysis of uh, police shootings data for the 40 largest cities. Uh, and what they found was that police departments that had Department of Justice intervention uh, that were put under consent decrees uh, actually had a 27% reduction in police shootings. So this is uh, definitely a intervention that has proven effective uh, in saving lives, uh, reducing police violence, increasing police accountability, uh, and now those interventions will be much harder for the Department of Justice uh, to actually uh, implement uh, in the future because of these types of restrictions that Jeff Sessions put in place. So part of what I think this reflects is how the Trump administration's general strategy around parts of the Obama administration's legacy is sort of decimating and stripping away the enforcement mechanisms and and the sort of teeth of things rather than sort of a wholesale erasure of a program. In some in some instances they do like obviously the they completely left the Paris Climate Accord. They completely left the Iran nuclear deal. But for so many of these things, like Obamacare, they weren't able to repeal Obamacare, so they essentially just continue to like tink, like chip away at it and make sure that premiums continue to to increase and that copays and continue to increase. And you know, Trump himself said like we're going to make it so that Obamacare make it so it's unpopular and doesn't work, so that they can ultimately try to repeal it, which it doesn't look like they'll be able to do now because of the House control of Congress. But you know, and so for this, they they don't invest. They don't say that they won't investigate police brutality. They just make it so that it's it's limited in scope, so that you have to have it signed off by a political appointee, which, as you said, Sam, is fundamentally different than having it signed off by a career employee. And so, you know, this is a a, a strategy that they have continued to use. Uh, in an effort to to decimate and roll back the effectiveness of things that the Obama administration had put in place. And I think that we're going to continue to see this used as a strategy, especially now, since they can't do a lot of work legislatively because of uh, split control of Congress. Things like this kind of exiting present that Jeff Sessions gave everyone to diminish the power and use of consent decrees uh, is a perfect example of just how many things can happen in an instant, with a memo, with the change of a single regulation that can wreak havoc on the progress that we have been making, not just in criminal justice reform, but in truly keeping communities safe. And if that is the work of the Department of Justice, then we have to be people that continue to hold them accountable, no matter who's in that seat. Who celebrated when Sessions was gone? 
hint, everybody. But the marijuana, the cannabis uh, businesses really had a spike when he left. So Canadian cannabis company Tilray saw its stock jump 30% the day after Sessions left. And stock for companies like Canopy Growth and Aurora Cannabis grew 9%. And there were also gains for cannabis funds like NASDAQ's Alternative Harvest Marijuana Fund and the Horizons Marijuana Life Sciences Fund. So it's been interesting to think about like what it actually does to economies. Side note, who knew that NASDAQ had like an alternative harvest marijuana fund? Like that is, it's just wild to watch, uh, you know, we arrest more people for weed than all violent crimes combined. And to know that that's true and then see things like NASDAQ have like a marijuana fund is just, you know, sort of absurd. I hope that these places are also fighting for decriminalization across the country. But it's interesting, about 62% of Americans actually support marijuana legalization, which is up from 31% in 2000. So you know, the new guy that got there, it's not, there's no indication that he's better than Sessions, but it is interesting to think about some of the things like marijuana that like might not be on this guy's radar and states might be able to do what they want to do. So as we continue to pay attention to what's happening in this administration, we can't take our eyes off of the Supreme Court. Now that Brett Kavanaugh is seated on the highest court in the land, there are states that are readying themselves to ban abortion. Essentially, overturning or weakening Roe versus Wade is what many people believe will happen now that Brett Kavanaugh is on the court. Many people believe that there are enough votes for this. And when Brett Kavanaugh was in his nomination process, one of the things that anti-abortion activists like to say was, we don't know what he's going to do once he's on the court. What overturning or weakening Roe at the Supreme Court level would allow states to do is to practically automatically ban abortion in their states. And so there are different ways that states are doing this. Voters in Alabama approved a measure that gives personhood status to fetuses. And on the same day, voters in West Virginia actually backed an initiative that states that nothing in its constitution, quote, secures or protects a right to abortion or requires the funding of abortion. So essentially, both of these measures would allow these states to more easily ban abortion. But they are not the only ones that are up to this. Louisiana, Mississippi, North Dakota, and South Dakota all essentially have what are called trigger bans, which means that if Roe is reversed, abortion would automatically become illegal in those states. And then there are nine states that have pre-Roe abortion bans on the books, which means that as soon as Roe is overturned, they could see abortion be illegal as well. Um, We've talked before about the dangers of banning abortion, because as a reminder, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, if states make abortion illegal, abortions will not stop. They will simply become far more dangerous. They will become deadly. And we know that it is mostly poor women and women of color who suffer disproportionately from the complications uh, that back alley abortions can bring. And so I wanted to bring this back up again because we discussed it a lot as Kavanaugh was uh, in line to get on the Supreme Court. But now that he's there, the danger is even higher. You know, this is a a reminder that, you know, ballot initiatives can go both ways. Uh, As we celebrate the victory in Florida for Amendment 4, restoring voting rights to 1.4 million people through a ballot initiative, uh, we also are are seeing in Alabama and West Virginia ballot initiatives that pass there uh, that make it easier for the state uh, to criminalize abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And so thinking about 
direct democracy and ballot initiatives as a strategy to make change, but also the limits of that and how that can be that process can be used uh, to put in place policies that are actually harmful to communities that that reduce access uh, to reproductive health care. And so, you know, moving forward in many of these states that have trigger bans, in many of these states uh, that have existing laws in place that would go into effect reducing access uh, to abortion in these 12 states, I think it is in total. Um, just thinking ahead of time, you know, as these states now go into session, as these legislatures with new, you know, more democratic uh, legislatures, state legislatures go into session, you know, hopefully there will be a, a lot of organizing and a big push uh, to make sure that those rights are actually protected and to, you know, ultimately put in place uh, laws that can withstand uh, any action by the Supreme Court uh, at the state level to protect all residents from being impacted by that decision. Yeah, and I think, you know, earlier I was talking about how one of the strategies of the Trump administration is to just sort of take away the teeth of certain endeavors or certain projects or certain initiatives or certain parts of previous sorts of legislation passed under under different administrations. And I think, you know, what we've seen over and over again is the Supreme Court uh, taking a similar tactic, right? You know, this is this is another tactic that is, is going to be used in the context of abortion. It might not necessarily be that uh, Roe v. Wade is completely overturned. It might be. We don't know. It's too early to say. But uh, it, it doesn't necessitate that Roe v. Wade is completely overturned. Um, what the Supreme Court can do is, is refuse to strike down sort of uh, exp what is continuing to be really restrictive and onerous, uh, you know, policies around abortion in, in specific states in ways that, um, you know, these places, as, as Brittany has alluded to, now feel a different sort of permission and a sort of implicit validation with which to proceed uh, on reducing and uh, restricting uh, reproductive rights. And even if Roe v. Wade is not overturned, uh, the Supreme Court can refuse to strike down restrictions that make it incredibly dangerous and incredibly difficult for, for people in, in states across the country. Um, and so it's certainly something to keep an eye on. I'm mindful that in West Virginia, it was 52% of voters that supported Amendment 1. And in uh, Alabama, it was 59% of voters. I think that there's still room for uh, public opinion to shift on these things. That, like, I'm still sort of shocked that, like, even in 2018, there are all these people who... It's one thing to, like, to say that you won't get an abortion. It's another thing to say that nobody should be able to get one at all. So, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, both Roe v. Wade won't get overturned but also that we won't see these trigger laws, which are also in place in uh, four other states, in Louisiana, Mississippi, North Dakota, and South Dakota, that we won't see these proliferate. So we all know that an arrest and a criminal charge alone can have a really devastating impact on someone's life. For example, in New York State, more than one in three people arrested are never convicted of a crime or an offense, but they suffer really dramatic consequences as a result of their that arrest alone. The sort of collateral damage and the instability that results can have far more devastating an impact than any of the direct penalties that one might experience as a result of uh, of a criminal conviction or incarceration. And and what's interesting is there's this new study that has been conducted by University of Pennsylvania and the Rand Corporation that looked at half a million cases in the Bronx criminal court over a 10-year period. And it compared outcomes between clients of the Bronx Defenders, uh, which is a holistic public defense model, and the Legal Aid Society, which uses traditional defender models and emphasizes uh, criminal representation. And it found that implementation of a holistic public defender model in the Bronx, it reduced sentencing length by 24%. 
it reduced incarceration rate by 16%, it reduced pretrial detention by 9%, and reduced the time that clients spent behind bars by 1.1 million days collectively. Uh, and so the Bronx holistic defense model is, is designed so that each client has a team that works to address both the case in addition to the underlying causes of justice involvement in the first place. And that ranges from drug addiction to mental illness to housing instability. And their team represents the client wherever they go, whether it's criminal, immigration, family, or civil courts, recognizing that involvement in any of these systems is a huge risk in sort of ensnaring people in other systems, right, that all of these different things are connected. And the study also revealed that by employing a holistic defense model, it saved New York taxpayers an estimated $165 million. And despite uh, a really significant release rate, defendants who receive holistic defense services were shown to commit no more crime than those who were incarcerated for longer periods. And so this is this is a really fascinating report and really important in so many ways because we talk on this podcast all the time about how we can't understand the justice system without understanding the larger social and historical sociopolitical context in which this system operates. And, and that's to, you know, on a macro level, but also on a micro level, right? We can't understand a, a, a specific person's involvement in the justice system without also understanding the way that eviction shaped their lives, the way that immigration policy shapes their lives, the way that, um, you know, uh, social, you know, access to social programs shape their lives, access to healthcare shape their lives, right? So all of these things we recognize intuitively are connected, but there are very few models that operate in ways that are holistic. I think we've seen some in the context of schools, uh, but we don't often see it in the context of adults. So one of the things that the Bronx Defenders has, has done so well is to recognize the sort of intersectional nature, if you will, of, of what it takes to get someone um, out of the claws of poverty. Uh, and and this is a really, really important report and, and something that I hope lots of public defenders across the country and, and lots of states across the country take note of in terms of when they think about what sort of defense opportunities and what sort of legal assistance to provide those who are living in poverty um, so that so that you're not only providing them defense attorneys, but that you're providing them a system and a structure in which they can sort of be removed again from the claws of poverty in ways that are sustainable and recognize the different uh, points at which they might be, you know, pulled back in. What I found so fascinating about this report was the fact that people who require government appointed uh, defense attorneys are often just not even brought into the conversation about criminal justice reform. So as we talk about ending mass incarceration in the general sphere, we often discuss uh, drug sentencing, we talk about sentencing reform, we talk about cash bail reform, but we talk very little about the system of public defenders and the needs of people who require public defenders. Uh, and so part of the reason for that is because there's actually not much research on it. So this is a pretty groundbreaking study in that it finally gives us longitudinal data on not just why that role is so important, but how to actually engage in public defense or publicly funded defense 
um, that is that is effective. Uh, and so, that as you already shared, Clint, there was a, there were a lot of really important learnings from this, but I didn't realize how much this was missing from the broader conversation on criminal justice reform. Um, and I'm going to take it upon myself to do more learning and understanding on this particular topic, because it, it seems as though this is one of those times when we treat people as if they are voiceless instead of simply passing the mic. There are needs that people have in those communities that we're clearly just not listening to. Um, and this is another opportunity for us to amplify the voices of people currently living in low-income circumstances um, as they interact with the criminal justice system that often requires them to have uh, public defenders that are overburdened, underpaid, and under-resourced, but that are doing their part, like the Brock's defenders, to, uh, to, to create solutions uh, to these challenges. Yeah, and I think, like you said, Clint, you know, we know that poverty requires a comprehensive solution in order to actually address, right? I think when we talk about education, you know, over the past several decades, I think the, the literature has sort of evolved to recognize that, right? That not, not only do, you know, kids and families need high-quality education in the classroom, but also they need access to healthy foods, they need a, a stable environment at home, they need a community uh, that is uh, able to invest in and support them and that has the resources to do so. Uh, and all of these things, you know, we see policies uh, attempting to address, policies like the, Prom the Federal Promise Neighborhoods Program and, and others uh, that are comprehensive in their approach. Uh, but then when we think about adults, oftentimes, you know, there is less of a investment, right? Uh, people are sort of comfortable investing in kids uh, to some extent, but when it, when it comes to adults, and particularly those impacted by the criminal justice system, Oftentimes, the resources and supports that they get are uh, very thin uh, and are very focused sort of narrowly on sort of defending them from uh, a particular charge, uh, but not really taking into account uh, all of the other needs uh, that people have who enter the criminal justice system and, who, and also who exit and are released from the criminal justice system. And this also reminds me of why I have a visceral reaction when people talk about like, oh, this insert here is the most important part of the criminal justice system and you know so people say prosecutors the most important part and like sentencing is the most important part and policing is the most important part and the reality is, is that all of it matters it just matters differently and when we play this game of like the most important part we often overlook some of the parts that just don't get as much play as others so we think about last week's episode where we had the public defender from chicago talking about the judge deputizing her defenders when people come to police stations like that is novel, interesting. We should be doing that in more cities across the country. But I didn't even know that was a thing until we talked to her. And like this study was another thing that like I'd never really heard about holistic defense as like a program and a strategy until this. And like what happens when we when we continue to participate in this idea of like one thing is the most important lever uh, because it's actually just not true. The criminal justice system is so complex that all of the levers matter. So we should talk about like how they matter differently as opposed to saying one is like the most important. My news is about the Senate race in uh, Mississippi. The election is going to be on November 27th. It is a special election because Cochran resigned due to health issues. Uh, there was somebody appointed, Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, and Mike Espy is running against her. No, I had no clue that Mike Espy, a black man who used to be the former Secretary of Agriculture, uh, was running for Senate. This would be a huge win if he gets it. And I've actually been shocked at how uh, this just hasn't been in the public conversation. I only know this because I randomly saw it online and I did some research and I was like, oh, there is a Senate race still happening. 
And one of the things that just happened that brought this race into the news a little bit more is that uh, just this weekend, Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith said at a rally, she said, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. And everybody's like, who makes lynching jokes? Like, I... That is... Sorry, what? Like, who... In Mississippi, no less. With a black opponent, yeah, like, no less. Yeah, like, who says that? So, she's, her, her response was, I referred to accepting an invitation to a speaking engagement. In referencing the one who invited me, I used an exaggerated expression of regard, and any attempt to turn this into a negative connotation is ridiculous. So, needless to say, Cindy Hyde-Smith needs to lose. We support Mike Espy. And please uh, check out Mike Espy's uh, campaign page so that we can uh, get him to win. Now, SB and Hotsmith both received 41% of the vote on election day, which is why they have a runoff on November 27th. I think this is a reminder that we should never leave anything off the table, right? That maybe some of us heard of Mike Espy, but just figured a Democrat and a, a black man Democrat at that was not going to win a statewide election in Mississippi. Maybe we just didn't see Mississippi as a place where a blue wave or a black wave could take place. Maybe, frankly, we just have not been paying enough attention to the domestic South, let alone the global South, um, to be having conversations about what is possible in the deep South and in a state like like Mississippi. So I want to go pay more attention to uh, this runoff because it really is coming down to turnout. And turnout often comes down to money, to making sure that we support candidates who have the ability to move a place like Mississippi forward. So, you know, Mississippi and, and the Senate race that uh, is ongoing there is illustrative of, you know, broader sort of political dynamics and how race interacts with politics in the South. So what's fascinating is that Mississippi has the largest uh, proportion of black residents of any other state in the country. Really? 38% of Mississippi's population wow. is black. Uh, and so you would, you would think with 38% of the population black that, you know, and, and black people tending to vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, that that would actually give Democrats, uh, it would make Democrats more competitive in a state uh, instead of being sort of referred to as such a deep red state. Uh, but actually, what we see happening when you look at the exit poll data for this past uh, election, that white voters vote for Republicans to the same extent that black voters vote for Democrats. And so the 58% white population in Mississippi just sort of overwhelms the, the power of the black vote in, in Mississippi. And that indeed happens uh, all too often all across the South, where you have a uh, sort of white majority, uh, but a sizable black population. Uh, and you know, you have the white majority essentially voting uh, overwhelmingly and almost unanimously for Republicans, uh, and that being sort of the reason why we see so many Republicans across the South and statewide office. Uh, so in the exit poll, 85% of white voters voted Republican, uh, and 83% of non-white voters voted Democrat. So you see this sort of uh, diametrically opposed political uh, dynamic happening where the slightly larger white population sort of uh, tends to win statewide. But... Uh, all that being said, there is an opportunity uh, for Democrats to win, uh, and that all has to come down. That all comes down to turnout, as you said, Brittany, uh, because there are about 800,000 uh, voting eligible Black residents in Mississippi, and you know this past election, uh, the total turnout was about 800,000. So, if every Black voter voted in Mississippi, uh, the Democrats would win every time. Uh, so I think the question is, how do we uh, support the organizing happening on the ground there to make sure that we can get as close to that everybody voting as possible? Yes, yeah, Sam, and just building off of what you said, it's it's not only that Mississippi has more black people per capita than 
than any other state in the country, it's that they also have more black elected officials than any other state in the nation. Um, but that is often on a, on a local level, right? So that's um, school board members, council members, aldermen, mayors of, of small towns. But it is not elected a black candidate to statewide office in more than 140 years since Reconstruction. And so, so it's as you said, the, the, the population is there. And we know from you know, exit polls over the past, this election, the election two years ago, and over, really over the past two decades, that, that black people are among the most progressive voting bloc in the country, um, if not the most, and specifically black women. And, and it's really a matter of how do we, as you said, support the, the work of registering folks to vote. And, and not only registering folks to vote, I think part of what this past election really illuminated for me is that it cannot simply be that we we get people to the polls. It cannot simply be registering people and encouraging them, go, them to go vote, but it also has to be about political education. I think that you know, I saw so many stories of people in, in Georgia or Florida who who were first time voters and they were like, oh, I came and I came to vote for Stacey Abrams and I came to vote for Andrew Gillum or I came to vote for, for Beto O'Rourke. And then but they had no idea of so many of the things, the things or people who were down ballot. And so we had the sort of star power that got people out to the polls, but we didn't do enough uh, to to educate people on the the amendments on the uh, specific bills as, as it relates or specific legislation as it relates to their specific localities and, and I think that that is a is a really important piece of organizing and and you know to be clear there are many many organizations and organizers who are doing this incredibly well but I think in our public discourse around uh, registering people to vote, what we have to include in that is not only simply getting people to vote, but making sure they understand the ballot initiatives and the amendments and the candidates um, who might not necessarily be at the top of the ticket, but who who in some ways impact their lives in a, in a far more direct way. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop And now, my conversation with Liz Brunick. Elizabeth, it is so great to have you here today on Pod Save the People. Thanks so much for having me on. 
Now, I want to talk to you because I remember reading uh, the the story that you wrote. And, you know, I'll have you tell us about how you got to this story. The original article was she reported her rape. Her hometown turned against her. Can justice ever be served? And I remember reading it and, and not only the story itself, but the way you told the story was something that I just... I'd always understood the way that bullying worked and shunning and, and things like that, but I'd never seen a story told that was true in that way. What would be your summary of the story for people who haven't read it? Um, so in 2006, a cheerleader uh, at a high school in North Texas, in Arlington, Texas, reported her rape uh, less than 12 hours after the incident took place. Uh, it was reported to an adult, it was reported to classmates, and it was reported to the police. She submitted to a, a sexual assault exam. Uh, she gave a full account uh, of her events to police. There were toxicology reports, and there was a full medical workup uh, gathering forensic evidence. There was semen recovered from her body as well as several other injuries. And despite all of that, no one was ever prosecuted for her rape. In fact, the town turned on her. And so the question that my article tries to answer is why? Now, one of the things that the article does that's so jarring is is paint the picture of how people turn on her from like the sort of lingo that people use to make fun of her to to just like how pervasive it was that like literally a community turned on her. And then the follow up that was written uh, where people, you know, later were like, I, I made it, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. Was there anything that you sort of, learn that you didn't know that surprised you in the process of just like going through and documenting the shunning? There definitely were surprises. I knew, you know, I had known because I was also a student at the high school that the kids had used, you know, these sort of in-jokes, these acronyms that they would paint on their cars uh, to make fun of her. And, uh, and I had known, of course, that there was graffiti spray painted on the side of the school about her because I was there the day that that happened. And, and I knew what people said in the hallways, and I knew the stories that they told. What I didn't know until I went back and started doing interviews was that adults had been a part of this. I thought it was limited to kids. I assumed that adults in the community didn't even know. I thought, you know, how often are teenagers completely transparent with their mom and dad about what's going on at school, especially when it involves something like a sexual assault at a party where there was quite a bit of alcohol and some drug use. As it turns out, parents did know, adults did know, and adults were involved in making fun of this girl and in shunning her and in moving her out of her school into another school. Uh, in making her the problem instead of the kids who were uh, who were abusing her. And, and there was quite a bit of adult involvement. Now, let me read a sentence from your piece that I want to talk to you about. You write, making sense of her ordeal meant tracing a web of failures, lies, abdications, and predations, at the center of which was a node of power that, though anonymous and dispersed, was nonetheless tilted firmly against a young, vulnerable girl. I wanted to know from you, like, how do you think this story reflects the way a system deals with survivors of sexual abuse? Is there anything that we can learn about, like, the overall system? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that um, one thing that really came to the fore when working on Amber's story was that th these cases, sexual assaults, are very difficult to prosecute. Even even sexual assaults that are, you know, what you would think of as a slam dunk where there's instantaneous reporting, there's forensic evidence that supports the victim's narrative, there are witnesses uh, who support the victim's narrative. Even in those cases, 
district attorneys know that these cases can be hard to bring before a jury because there is just a lot of ambiguity. Uh, When it comes down to it, there are only two or three, in this case, eyewitnesses to the actual event. And and because people have a lot of preconceived notions and prejudices about what a real sexual assault should look like. You know, a, a Sunday school teacher walking home from church gets grabbed in an alley by a stranger. That's that's kind of the classic notion of what a sexual assault looks like. But, you know, the vast majority are not like that. They don't involve strangers and they don't necessarily involve, you know, what, what you would think of as coercive violence. And so the court system, the legal system, the criminal justice system, uh, they still kind of haven't adapted in a lot of cases, you know, to being prepared to present these sorts of cases that are actually uh, the more common kinds of sexual assaults. And then, I, and I think the other side of that coin is, as a society, we, we interpret an inability for a district attorney to proceed with a case. In this case, a grand jury didn't return an indictment or a jury returning a not guilty verdict or, or acquitting someone. Uh, you know, we associate all of that with, uh, with very strong evidence that what the victim said wasn't true. And we, we have a hard time thinking, well, the criminal justice system just maybe isn't perfectly set up. Uh, to handle cases like these. And, and I think those kinds of social failures really came out in Amber's story. In the article, you do cite a report that highlights some of the disparities in numbers and notes some of the challenges in Arlington and Austin with regard to moving forward within the justice system with these sorts of complaints yeah. or allegations or charges. Uh, how much do you think culture plays in that? Like, what's the role of culture? And I ask because what your piece did for me was sort of push me to think about what does it mean when, as you just said, all these adults and young people sort of shun victims who do everything that you're supposed to do, right? Like, you're supposed to report it timely. Mm-hmm. Like, she did that uh, and still didn't see justice. So, like, the, is culture a, a big factor or not? Or, like, I don't know. Like, help us think about that. In trying to understand why Tarrant County had such a disproportionate rate of non-indictments, so so basically what the study found, like you said, was that um, when these sexual assault cases would be taken before Tarrant County grand juries, which was the first step in a process to bringing them to trial, um, Tarrant County grand juries no-billed or failed to return an indictment on, uh, you know, a little bit more than half of these acquaintance rape sexual assault cases. Um, And a detective, a sex crimes detective uh, in North Texas, you know, started counting how many of her cases uh, ended up going to uh, trial and how many didn't. And that's how she uh, she she came up with the knowledge that uh, there was something really wrong in Tarrant County compared with other places in Texas, like Austin, which I believe had a 13 percent non-indictment rate. What the reporting turned up uh, is firstly that some district attorneys who had been in charge didn't actually seem all that invested uh, or convinced that these kinds of sexual assaults really deserved a, a lot of attention. One of the former district attorneys I interviewed in the story referred to acquaintance rape as consensual rape, for instance, which uh, wow. <laughs> maybe maybe suggests there was a little bit of a problem inside the district attorney's office in terms of how they dealt with these cases and how they presented them. We also found that in in many cases, when assistant district attorneys would present these cases 
uh, to grand juries, they wouldn't call any witnesses to testify to the grand jury. So in Amber's case, she wasn't called to testify. The lead detective on her case wasn't called to testify. And the sexual assault nurse examiner who, who examined Amber and spoke to me on the record for the story wasn't called to testify. So we know that that hearing was was pretty inadequate and pretty incomplete. Uh, and then and then the other part of the equation is the grand juries themselves. At this time in Texas, uh, grand juries were not randomly selected. Uh, they were appointed uh, by grand jury commissioners who were in turn appointed by judges. And so in many cases, these would be, you know, fairly homogenous groups of older white men who were maybe retired or had the time to devote to grand jury duty uh, and and had their own opinions and views about what constituted a real sexual assault and also what kind of victims deserve justice. That's sort of wild that so that all those people weren't called for the grand jury. It's like, a, yeah, like, of course, the outcome sort of <laughs> it's almost like a mockery of what we think justice is. Right. The nurse who did Amber's sexual assault uh, exam spoke to me and told me, uh, you know, that she was infuriated that she was never called because it was her view that Amber was certainly raped. Since the article came out, has anything changed in that county? Like, is there, did these sort of revelations like shed light for other people that you think is going to have an impact? I think it's hard to tell yet if the article itself is is going to have any impact. The District attorney who is in Tarrant County now uh, is a woman named Sharon Wilson. She, you know, hasn't commented on Amber's case or what the county plans to do, if anything, uh, with Amber's case or for Amber. But she has said that uh, since 2013 and 2014, there has been a big change in terms of their indictment rate for sexual assault. She says that uh, I think 83% of, of cases or 85, something like that, uh, are, are actually indicted now. So, so, you know, there are some signals that things have changed and are moving in the right direction. Uh, it's hard to know to what degree and whether the article itself will be a part of that story. You wrote, she reported her rape, her hometown turned against her, can justice ever be served? Do you think justice can ever be served? That's a good question. I think it's hard. I know that uh, statutes of limitation are up for certain legal actions. You know, in in Texas, there is no statute of limitation on the rape of a child. Uh, And Amber was 16 at the time. So that is how this is coded and classified. On the other hand, quite a bit of the evidence, if not all of it, the physical evidence has apparently been destroyed, according to detectives records that, that we received so it would be very difficult, I think, you know, to sort of do anything with the case at this point. And, and Why has it been destroyed? Yeah, it was destroyed in 2009, according to correspondence between an evidence tech and the detective on the case. Uh, and apparently this is just procedure for cases that are not indicted. So they have this physical evidence laying around. Uh, and uh, And I guess they at some point just destroyed it because that's what they do with physical evidence related to cases that aren't sent to trial. So. Wow. Well, that is. Do you do we know how much other stuff is destroyed? Like that's that seems like a whole nother. That seems like a whole new story. Right. There, there's not a ton of clarity. the The correspondence between the detective and the evidence tech just reflected that the physical evidence uh, was destroyed. Further reporting, I believe, uh, when Megan Kelly brought Amber on the Today Show. Uh, to to talk with her. Uh, Her crew contacted the Arlington Police Department, and they seemed to suggest that some of that uh, physical evidence had actually survived, but they they 
didn't release that to me and and they didn't uh, it doesn't sound like they elaborated on what might still exist. We know there are still records um, because we received the full police records. So there are records of all the physical evidence. But it seems like, you know, maybe uh, the swabs themselves and and that stuff is uh, is gone. But it but again, it's not totally clear. That's just based on correspondence between the detective and the evidence tech who he authorized to destroy uh, the remaining physical evidence uh, three, two years uh, after the, the case was not indicted. I- additionally, you know, talking about evidence, Amber spent the night at, the, at a friend's house uh, the night of the incident. Uh, so she comes back from the shed where she says she's raped wearing a skirt, you know, sort of an athletic skirt shorts combo because she was cheerleading. And she immediately reported what had happened uh, to the homeowner, her friend's mom, uh, it was this 50 year old woman. And uh, the mom, instead of calling the police or calling Amber's parents, uh, just tells Amber to go to bed. And before she does that, she gives her a change of clothes. She gives her a pair of her daughter's sleep shorts and a T-shirt. And Amber's skirt was never recovered from that house. We don't know what happened to it. It's gone. Wait, I don't. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, <laughs> Right. What do you mean you never, I don't, under, like, what do you mean you never, what? So when, when the police arrived at the house the next day, uh, just a few hours later, uh, and they found a t-shirt matching the description of Amber's t-shirt in the washing machine, but they never recovered the skort, which is where any epithelial DNA or semen would have been. They never recovered it. It was gone. The homeowner took it from Amber, uh, and then it was never seen again. Uh, Amber went home wearing the clothes that the homeowner had given her, uh, and she surrendered those to police at the hospital. And it's just not known what happened to her skort. Did you talk to the homeowner? Yeah, I sure did. As you can imagine, she wasn't interested in talking to us. Um, She declined uh, to comment for the article. And she was very supportive of the boys. We do have a taped interview that she did Uh, with the police where she said that Amber was obnoxious, that Amber used drugs and was drunk. And she said that the boys were very good boys who she trusted. That's wild. You know, another thing that you wrote was what motivates otherwise ordinary people to abandon all pretense of mercy when faced with the abject need for it? Like what what do you think, especially because you were there, what do you think like created the conditions that allow people to treat her so unfairly? I think Amber was a vulnerable person in a lot of ways. Uh, She was known to struggle with drug use. She was known to not be as well off uh, as some of the girls in cheerleading. And uh, I think that, you know, you would expect when people encounter a vulnerable person, they sort of want to help and protect that person. But I think that there's also this other urge that is to destroy them, to, to, to push them away and to abandon them. Because vulnerable people, you know, when you look at them and you treat them as human beings, you have to reckon with the fact that you too could be vulnerable. You too could need help. It could happen to you. And I think a lot of people are deeply, extremely, viscerally averse to recognizing that. And they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with vulnerable people who need help. They don't want the mess. They don't want the trouble. Uh, And they would rather think of themselves as better than that and above it and different uh, and someone to whom nothing like that could ever happen. And so they rally around the people who they see as strong and upstanding and uh, and they think they'll they'll get away with it. And in a lot of cases, they do. 
Have you gotten a sense of like where the levers of change are? Is it that like we need better laws? Is it that we need better prosecutors? Is it that we need better investigators, better policies, like, or, or simply better communities? I don't know. What's the what? Do you have a sense of what the what is? Yeah. I mean, I think that there have been reforms to the Texas grand jury system since this, which I think are positive. Grand jurors are now randomly selected from the population instead of appointed. So there's a better chance of having, you know, women on the grand jury, people who have had these kinds of experiences or know people who have um, people from different class and racial backgrounds uh, who, who might have different perspectives um, on, on all kinds of elements of the case. I think that that is an improvement. Um, I think prosecutors need to be trained on how to deal with these kinds of cases. The former district attorney that I spoke to said that after detectives raised concerns about not being called uh, to the grand jury hearings to testify, uh, this former DA said, you know, after they raised a stink about that, we invited them every single time there was a case like this. We called the detectives to testify and they never came. They didn't show up. So I asked the Arlington Police Department, is that true? And they said, no, it was a lie. Uh, so obviously there's some kind of breakdown uh, between the prosecutor's office and and the, the detectives. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that in any situation where you're handling sexual assault cases like this uh, that are notoriously difficult to prosecute, there needs to be very close coordination and um, solidarity with the, the detectives and the prosecutors. And, and I don't think you always have that. I think they can, in fact, view each other as, um, you know, sort of rivals or people at cross purposes. Um, and so that's a problem. And then I think that on the on the, the end, yeah, we need better communities. We need people who think differently about vulnerable people. And we, we need people who think differently about how to respond uh, to vulnerability and to people who, who need help. And, and that's not just in cases of sexual assault. That's across the board. This is a major deficit in our society. So for those who haven't read the, the pieces yet, so the initial piece is what we've been focused on so much, but there is an epilogue. Why? So um, one thing that I wanted to to do was not portray Amber as just a victim. I wanted to sort of give her a whole story um, and portray her as the full and complete and, you know, vibrant person that she is. And so I wanted to give readers a glimpse into, you know, what happens after a story like this comes out. It was very, very widely read. And and I knew that readers would be curious about how Amber was doing. And I wanted to, you know, let her life go on in a sense. One of the things that happens when you do a big investigation like this, uh, and this is when police do it and when journalists do it, is you can kind of freeze a person in time. You know, so there was definitely a period there while while Amber and I were working on this story where she was thinking about this, talking about it, considering it, reflecting on it, remembering it every day. And it was, you know, 12 years ago. And I I didn't want that to be the end of her story. I didn't want to freeze her in time. uh, And I wanted to do everything I could as a journalist to kind of free her to move on with her life and go forward. And so I added that to the story. And, and she has she has moved on. She has moved forward. Uh, people responded to the piece overwhelmingly positively. Uh, quite a few kids from our former high school contacted Amber to apologize for their behavior at the time, including a, a captain of the football team and, and, and people who she had known. Uh, lots of victims of similar 
uh, Saltz reached out to her to talk to her, and and a lot of people thanked her for coming forward with her story. And and since then, she's she's moving on. She's an advocate for sexual assault victims now. That's what she's focused on. And so, you know, she's not frozen in this one time. And, and I thought that was important to get across. Yeah, that makes sense. And what's next for you? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I uh, I really enjoy doing this kind of investigation. I'm open to doing more investigations. Um, you know, I'm always taking tips. My email is uh, is just elizabeth.brunig, my name, at washpost.com. Elizabeth.brunig at washpost.com. Always happy to hear from folks, uh, even just to talk and say hi. And, and I've been working on the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church as well and doing some reporting on that. And I, and I hope I can contribute uh, there as well. Well, I appreciate you making time uh, to talk about this. I look forward to following your stories. This one is one that I'll never forget. Uh, You know, it's also one of the few stories that I've ever seen the wraparound. Like I remember seeing the epilogue and being like, wow, I've never, this is, you know, I think you're right about people get stuck in time. Like that was how I knew her. That was how I knew Amber. And then it was like, oh, I actually get to see her process other people's responses to this. And like, that's actually really interesting. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, I consider you a friend of the pod and hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.